0: Several great songs that she just played that go along perfectly with the message. So what a great segue into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 is where we will be this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Our passage this morning is a a daunting task it's probably one of the most glorious and, and powerful portions of Scripture. Some say that it was probably sung as a hymn in the early church, and that Paul records it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He report, records it as part of the inspiration of Scripture. Probably one of the most quoted and most discussed passages in the New Testament. And there's, there was a part of me as I started to, to look through this this week that I was like, I don't really even want to touch this. Because I'll just mess it up. Maybe we should just read it 10 times and call it quits. Some of you might be thinking, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that. But as, I, as you read through it, you, I, I, what came to my mind was Handel's Messiah. You ever listen through that, the Hallelujah chorus and, and all of that? And it's one of those pieces of music that when you hear it, you don't like whisper to your neighbor the whole time through it and talk about you know, what you're getting for lunch afterwards, do you? you listen to it because it's powerful, it's engaging. And as we read this today, and hopefully my desire is not to mar its power with with over-explanation, but just, just to shed light on it for what it means and what it calls us to do. So with Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, I'd like to accomplish two goals today, and they are these. Number one, to develop and increase our Christology, what we believe about Christ, so that we better understand who Christ is and what he has done. These four verses are packed full of a Christology, what we believe about Christ. And then by learning about Christ, I would like us to see, this is goal number two, like us to see and apply to our lives Christ's example of submission, selflessness, service, and sacrifice. If we can accomplish those two goals, I'll be happy. Let's read Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Now, the hymn, as it were, probably initially recorded, is down through verse 11. And we'll cover verses 9, 10, and 11 next week. But for today, just verses 5 through 8. And in verse 5, Paul tells us his goal in recording this hymnic district description of Christ. He says he wants the mindset and attitude of Christ to rub off on us so that we live like him. You see that in verse 5? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if you think back to last week, we covered verses 1 through 4. Verses like verse 3, where it says, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. That harmony and that humility we are to have as we serve one another. Where does that come from? Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to pattern our, our living out of verses 3 and 4 to pattern that off of Christ, verse 5. Let this mind be in you. What was, was and is in Christ should be what is in us as well. Now the you in verse 5, let this mind be in you, it can be singular or plural. And I'd like to think of, a, think of it today, for us to think of it today as plural. In other words, let this mind be in all of you. Let this mind be in yourselves. Because our unity and service to one another that Christ demonstrates is to be collective. We're all supposed to take part in that. We are to be a community of people mindful of what Christ desires for us and in us. Because think about it. How effective is one person that has unity? It's hard to have unity with your... Well, I guess it's easy to have unity with yourself. But if just one person displays unity, it doesn't go very far. But if all of us collectively, if the mind of Christ is in all of us, wow, that's a powerful statement to the watching world, isn't it? It's a powerful statement of us being together. As we move through verses six through eight, I've developed four headings here that hopefully will guide our thoughts and stir our application of Christ's example. I want us to see in these three verses, Christ's Submission, selflessness, service, and sacrifice, and we'll come back to those four words, but in these four ways, number one, by God becoming man, number two, by everything becoming nothing, number three, by a king becoming a servant, and number four, by life becoming death. And we'll work our way through these. And all of these overlap in these verses. And some of the phrases in verses 6, 7, through 8, they, they fit into multiple of those categories. But hopefully that'll help us think through this passage. So if you would, look at verse 6. Really verses 6, 7, and 8 all together. But number one, God became man. God became man. We see this in these phrases. If you would, verse 6, it says, being in the form of God. At the end of verse 6, it says, he was equal with God. But then in verse 7, it says he was made in the likeness of men. And then in verse 8, being found in fashion as a man. God became a man. The Son of God became a person. Now verse 6 clearly and plainly tells us one of the most important things about Jesus. And that is this, that he is in the form of God and he is equal with God because he is God. He is in the form of God, and he is equal with God because he is God. The Greek word for form is morphe. It does not mean that he just appeared to look like God. Oh, he took the form, or he has the form of God, but he's not really God. He just appears like God. No, it means that he has the essential attributes of God, and his very existence is and always has been divine. That's the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Then at the end of verse 6, it says that he is equal with God. Well, if you're not convinced by form of God, then we should be convinced that he is God with the phrase equal with God. Why? Because who can be equal with God but God himself? No one else can, can rise to that level, can they? John 1.1, 1, 1, when we consider that verse, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That clarifies it for us perfectly. Jesus is God. He has existed from before the beginning. He was not created, and there never was a time when Jesus was not. Now, in the years leading up to A.D. 325, it's a long time ago, but the years leading up to A.D. 325, a false teacher named Arius had promoted the heresy that Jesus was a created being and that he was less than God. And in AD 325, at the Council of Nicaea, a bold man by the name of Athanasius proclaimed and defended the scriptural view of Jesus' deity, that he was not created and that he is God. And from that council in AD 325 came the Nicene Creed, which says in part, the part about Jesus reads this, listen to this. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. What a statement. That Jesus is God from God. He is light from light. He is true God from true God. The same essence as the Father. Jesus Christ is God. Now, through the years, from that point, and even to our day, many heresies about Christ's deity have developed. His his deity, his humanity, how that mixes, whether it's one, whether it's the other, whether it's two, whatever it looks like. Some of those are called, and we're not going to get into all these, but Ebionism and Apollinarianism and Eutychianism and Docetism, doesn't that sound like fun to go through all of those? But they attack his humanity and or his deity. You say, well, I've never heard of any of those and I wouldn't be able to describe them. That's okay. Because may I ask, what's the dominant heresy today regarding Christ in 21st century America? If I can make up my own term, I think it's this, flippancyism. Flippancyism. It's this, well, Jesus is a nice guy with some nice ideas, but don't take him too seriously. And that may start in the world, when we think of Jesus as, oh, just a nice historical figure. But you know where it creeps into often? The church. Instead of Jesus being the root and the foundation of our faith, in all that we, we come and we worship together, we worship him, we exalt his name, as it says in verses 9, 10, and 11, oh, well, he's just kind of another, another guy with some nice ideas, you know, maybe, maybe like maybe the favorite author that I read or something like that. You know who has to defend the doctrine of the biblical Christ? The world won't. We have to defend that. We have to defend it by what we believe and by what we live. We have to say to the world that he is God. Christ is God. That he is Savior. And that he is Lord. And we just stop just defining Jesus as we want to. Well, I like to think of Jesus as my whatever. No, we need to define Jesus as Scripture defines him. We are not to make Jesus what we want him to be. He is to make us what he wants us to be. That's the truth. He is to mold and shape us. We are not to mold and shape him into what he wants or what we want him to be. He is already defined as he is in Scripture. And it's important that we as Christians defend that. So verse 6 is very clear. Jesus is God. We see that throughout Scripture. Clearly and repeatedly throughout scripture, the Son of God is God. Yet we come across verse 7 here, the end, it says he was made in the likeness of men. And then verse 8, being found in fashion as a man. Here's the awesome thing that God did on our behalf, that the Son of God became man. Jesus became man for us. He came in the likeness of man. He was found in fashion as a man. Now, we've already proved his deity. These verses prove his humanity. Now, once again, it was not like that he was like a man. He was just kind of like a man. No, he was a man. His appearance was not an illusion. It was legitimate. And we see this throughout Scripture in the New Testament. When you see what Jesus has done and the things that he went through. Matthew 4, verse 2, Jesus got hungry. I know he was a man then. Right? Men, do you get hungry? Exactly. You know he was a man. He got hungry. John 4, 6, it says he got tired and he got worn out And the frailty of his human body. John eleven thirty five and 38, he experienced sorrow. He wept. He was grieved. And Hebrews four fifteen this is a great verse, it says he was tempted with sin like we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus is completely human in every way, except for one thing, and that is what? Sin. Except for sin. So when you looked at Jesus, it wasn't like we see in some of those pictures, right, where there's that little like shining halo glow thing around his head. It's not that. When people looked at him, when people looked at Jesus, people knew he was a man. When they watched what he did, people realized he was more than just a man. His appearance physically looked a lot more like a man than it did like God. Yet when they watched what Jesus did, they said, something's different about this guy. Even the disciples, remember they're on the boat and Jesus just calms the storm. Peace be still, the wind and the waves, they calm down. And the disciples look at each other and they say, what kind of man is this? See, they knew he was a man, but they knew he's also something more than a man. There's something else about this guy too. Same thing is is asked in Luke 7, 49. Jesus forgives the sins of somebody that he heals, and the Pharisees say, who is this that forgives sins? See, they knew he was a person, but they knew, wait, he's forgiving sins. Something's different with this guy. He was 100% man. This comes out through Scripture. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. We call that the hypostatic union. You can go amaze your friends at lunch with that new term you learned, right? The hypostatic union, 100% God, fully God, and yet also fully man. So the God of the universe becomes man on our behalf. Let's look at the second one here. Everything became nothing. We see this in the phrases in verse 6 where it says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. We see it in verse 7 where... It says he made himself of no reputation. And then in verse 8, it says he humbled himself. Here's Jesus. We've already established that he is very God from very God. He was everything, all deity and power and sovereignty and greatness was his. And yet he became as nothing for us. Where do we see this? Look at verse six. This is a tough phrase. It's it's a unique phrase in verse six where it says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The Greek word for robbery only shows up here in the New Testament. There's not a whole lot of other stuff to go on to figure out what this means. Yet it can also mean, the word for robbery can also mean to grasp or to clutch or to hold on tightly to something. Kind of like maybe like a miser or a hoarder, right? Keep it for myself. Some other translations are helpful here. When It it takes this phrase and says, who being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. It's a tough phrase, but as I understand it, it means this, that Christ was willing to give up his rights as God. In other words, he did not demand to hold on to them too tightly. I have to maintain this. Instead, he was open-handed. He was willing to serve. He was willing to give. He was willing to, watch this, he was willing to relinquish some of the blessings of being God so that he could be a blessing to us. One of the, one of the commentaries I read, they put it this way, he did not consider being God grounds for getting, but forgiving. Chuck Swindoll said, he had an attitude of selfless humility, not an air of self-focused superiority let this mind be in you. A mind of selfless humility, not an air of self-focused superiority. We are willing to give up what you are, what you have, in order to be a blessing to someone else. We see that again in verse 7. He says, he made himself of no reputation. The verb here means that he emptied himself. Now, he did not empty himself of his divine being, because that would mean while he was on earth, he ceased being God. That's not what he emptied himself of. He did not empty himself of his divine being. He was still God. He veiled his deity while he was here on earth. He did not avoid his deity. You say, well, what did he do then? He gave up his heavenly status and place in order to condescend to us. How blessed would it be to be in heaven with God the Father, and all the glory of the angels, praising God Almighty. And you're there as the Son of God, taking part in that. And yet, coming to, man, coming to earth as a man, willing to give up all of that, all, everything, and become as nothing for people whom the Bible say, hate you. Verse 8, it says, he humbled himself. And I think the wording of this is important. It shows us that he did it. He humbled himself. He was not forced to do it. He he was not forced to be of no reputation. He humbled himself willingly. Keep in mind, there at the end of Jesus' life, while he's hanging on the cross, it does not say that the Romans killed him. It does not say that the Jews killed him. It says he gave up the ghost. In other words, he chose to be given as a sacrifice. Here, the same idea. He chose to humble himself. He willingly humbles himself, and he comes. We're going to celebrate it here in, in about a month. He comes humbly, born in, in a noisy stable next to stinking animals and laid in a, in a trough meant to feed the animals. He had a humble life, and at one point he told, he told somebody, he said, foxes have dens and, and birds have nests, but The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Talk about humble. Look at the people that he got around him. Humble friends, no? Nobody knew their names. They're a group of nobodies. He humbled himself while he was on earth. He humbled himself to the Father's will, though he was equal with the Father. We already said he's equal with God, yet while on earth he was willing to humble himself and become obedient to the Father. He submitted or humbled himself to the betrayer's kiss. He submitted to the Roman shackles. He submitted to Jewish accusations. He submitted to the guard's mockery and he submitted to a criminal's cross. And it says he did all of that. He was not forced. He did all of that willingly on our behalf. Is this mind in us? Is this mind in you? Are you willing to humble yourself for the benefit of others? What a picture of what Christ has done. What an example for us to follow. In the New Testament, the, the spirit of the instruction is that we are to humble ourselves. Sometimes we think of, of that, right? Well, somebody else humbled me or I was humbled in their presence or whatever. No, it says we are to humble ourselves. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. First Peter 5.6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And it shows up here in the verses we, we read last week too, Philippians 2 verse 3. In lowliness or humility of mind, we are to esteem others as better than ourselves like Christ did. Is this mind in us? Are we willing to become less than what we are so that others can become more than what they are? Is this mind in us? The third category here, a king became a servant. We've already established that Jesus is God, so by nature of Jesus being God, he is also king. King of the universe to be exalted and be lifted up as we will see next week in verses 9, 10, and 11. Yet the king of the universe condescends to us to become the furthest thing from a king. Verse 7, he took upon him the form of a servant. That word servant could also be slave or bond servant. The king of the universe, all power and greatness is his, condescends to us and becomes the furthest thing from a king, a slave or a servant. To take the form of a servant is remarkable. What other king in history has done that? Anyone? Anybody? The king who would become, who else would stoop from so exalted a position to so low a place? And yet the king of the universe takes on the form of a slave so that he might save those of us enslaved to sin. He becomes a slave so we might be free. And as a servant or as a slave through his life, we we notice this throughout the New Testament again, the lowest of society is who he identifies with. Is it not? The woman at the well, no one else wanted anything to do with her. The woman caught in adultery about to be stoned. The 12 men he chose his disciples, the maniac of Gadara. Remember that guy? Yet yeah, Jesus came to him. The sinners and the publicans that he was guilty of associating with, the king of the universe is stooping to them. Are we, are, is that mind in us? Are we willing to, to stoop to that level? Or are those people just beneath our class, beneath our status, Are we like the priest and the Levite who pompously puff out their chests as they pass by the wounded man because they were too busy doing the Lord's important work? I I read these verses last week in the message, Matthew 25, 40, but I, I hope these words of Jesus haunt us in a sense when he says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. That should haunt us, that should ring in our minds when we see somebody in need and The attitude of service and selflessness of Christ should come into our attitude. Paul got it. Look back at Philippians 1 verse 1. Very first phrase of the entire book. Paul got the attitude. The mind of Christ was in him. He says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Think of all the other things that Paul could have identified himself as right? Paul and Timothy, the great evangelists of Christ. Paul and Timothy, superstar Christians. Paul and Timothy, notorious soul winners. But he doesn't, does he? What's he say? Slave of Christ. Servant of Christ. He chooses the lowly title, not the exalted one. Number four, life becomes death. We see this in the last phrase of verse 8. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What does it mean that he became obedient? Well, for the time that he was on earth, the one who was equal with the Father submitted himself to the Father. He became obedient to the Father's will. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to submit to someone to whom you are equal. Is it not? It's hard to submit to someone to whom you are equal. Yet Christ did it as our example. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ has that defining moment in which he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Nevertheless, all things considered, not my will, but thine be done. Is that mind in us? Or is it my will, what I want? Notice here, the king of the universe, the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life becomes obedient to death. The life becomes death for us so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Mark 10, 45, our our scripture memory for for this month, it says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He did not come to be given to, but to give. And he gave in the most humiliating way possible. Even, the Bible says, see that word even there? kind of accentuates a little bit. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Just dying is one thing. Dying the death of the cross is an entirely different thing. The inglorious nature of death on the cross, the most painful, torturous, shameful, and humiliating public way to die that the Romans ever devised yet he was willing to die that death because there was no limit to his love. Is this mind in us? Is that mind of Christ in us? Now we've worked our way through verses 6, 7, and 8, looking at every phrase there. And I want to remind us of something. In this passage here, Paul is using Christ's life as an example to us. He says, here, here Christ is the extreme or supreme example of Christian behavior. And that's what you are to be. But I want to be crystal clear here as well. Christ's life and his death is an example to us of how we are to live, but it is also the power of God unto salvation. There's some people that stop short. Christ was a good guy. He was just giving us an example of how we are to live, and we should do that as well. If you believe that, that's a works-based salvation because we say, look at Christ and then go do what he did. Well, now you're trusting in your own works to save you. Christ is the example for us as we see in this passage, and that's how Paul uses it. But Christ's death is also what saves us. His blood was shed on our behalf. It saves us from what we have done. So if you're sitting here today and you say, I've never trusted in Christ. I don't know Christ as my personal Savior. I know the example that Christ has given to me, and and yes, I want to live in that way. But that's not sufficient, because that's trusting in your own works, your own ability to do what Christ has done. Instead, the Bible says, put your faith and trust in Him. Do not trust in yourself. Turn to Christ. Christ saves. I cannot, you cannot save yourself. Jesus Christ saves. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross, he will come to me. Isn't that powerful? Christ came to save. So in verses 5 through 8, we've covered a lot of ground, have we not? I want to draw it to a conclusion by summarizing with these four words. The mind of Christ is to be in us. The mind of Christ that is to be in us is the mind of submission. Christ willingly submitted to the Father's will, and he submitted to our needs. The mind of Christ that is to be in us is the mind of selflessness. Christ willingly gave up what he had so we would get what we didn't have. The mind of Christ that is to be in us is the mind of service. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. Husbands, you realize you're called to do the same thing in Ephesians 5? Love your wives, even as Christ also has loved the church and gave himself for it in service. Pastors are called in 1 Peter 5 to serve as overseers, to serve. Do we expect to be served or do we look for opportunities to serve? I heard somebody say this earlier this week and it was, it was perfect. I was like, I'm stealing that. Take this one step further. Don't just look for opportunities to serve, create opportunities to serve. Isn't that good? Don't just look for opportunities, make them happen. Create opportunities to serve. And then the mind of Christ that is to be in us is the mind of sacrifice. The mind of sacrifice. What in our life needs to be laid down so that others might be lifted up? the mind of sacrifice that was in Christ. His submission, his selflessness, his service, and his sacrifice. His mind is to be our mind. But I think this is helpful because that's a, that's a big load to handle, isn't it? There's no way I can do that. There's no way I can have that mind. There's no way I can do all of that. Here's the greatest part. Don't miss this. Not only does Christ show us the mind to have, but he also works in us to have that mind. Say, so where do you get that from? couple of verses further into Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We're going to get to those verses in a couple of weeks. But here's what I want to show you. Christ doesn't just show us what to do. He does show us what to do. He also works in us to do that. That's the difference between Christ and me. When I try to be a good example for my kids... That's all I can be is a good example. I cannot work in their heart or in their mind to make them do or cause them to do what I have shown them to do, but Christ does. That's the way we can do any of this because he shows us the example, yet he also through the power of the Holy Spirit works in us to accomplish that. That's the hope we have in Christ. Would you take your Bibles as we close and go back to John 13? In John 13, Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his disciples just hours before his betrayal and before his death. Now, when a group of people like this would have gathered for an occasion like this, it was customary that the servants would wash the guests' feet. But guess what? Jesus and his disciples are sitting there, and they're sitting there with dirty feet. Why? Because no one was willing to stoop. No one was willing to stoop to the level of the servant to meet the needs of the others in the room. No one, that is, until whom? Christ. Until Christ, it says in verse number four, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. No one was willing to stoop to the level of the servant until Christ did it. And I think when he did, you could have heard a pin drop because the disciples are all looking around and they're seeing the significance of what Christ has done. The king of the universe becoming the servant, the lowest of the low. I just read verses four and five, but look at verse three. He acts in verse 4 and 5 by rising from supper, taking his garment, washing the disciples' feet, knowing that verse 3 is true. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. What is that telling us? Jesus knew he was God Almighty. He knew what was about to happen. He knew where he was going. He knew where he had come from. And knowing all of that, He stoops and he serves. With all of the greatness of being God in his mind, his mind was to serve like the lowest of the servants. Do you realize in this passage, he even washed the feet of the betrayer. He washed the feet that he made with the water that he made because no service is too far below that of Christ. May that mind, as it says in Philippians 2, may that mind of Christ be in us. Let's pray.